Robert Burns writes this. When chill November's surly blast made fields and forests bare, one evening as I wandered forth along the banks of air, I spied a man whose aged step seemed weary, worn with care. His face furrowed o'er with years, and hoary was his hair. Young stranger, whither wanderest thou, began the reverend sage. Does thirst of wealth thy step constrain, or youthful pleasures rage? Or, haply pressed with cares and woes, too soon thou hast began to wander forth with me to mourn the miseries of man. The sun that overhangs yon moors, outspreading far and wide, where hundreds labor to support a haughty lordling's pride. I've seen yon weary winter sun, twice forty times return, and every time has added proofs that man was made to mourn. O oh man, while in thy early years, how prodigal of time, misspending all thy precious hours, thy glorious youthful prime. Alternate follies take the sway, licentious passions burn, which tenfold force gives nature's law, that man was made to mourn. Look not alone on youthful prime or manhood's active might. Man then is useful to his kind, supported in his right. But see him on the edge of life. With cares and sorrows worn. Then age and want, oh, ill-matched pair, shoe man was made to mourn. A few seem favorites of fate, in pleasure's lap caressed. Yet think not all the rich and great are likewise truly blessed. But, oh, what crowds in every land, all wretched and forlorn. Through weary life this lesson learned that man was made to mourn. Many and sharp, the numerous ills, inwoven with our frame. More pointed still, we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man, whose heaven-wrecked face, the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man, makes countless thousands mourn. See yonder poor or labored white, so abject, mean, and vile, who begs a brother of the earth. To give him leave to toil. And see his lordly fellow worm. The poor petition spurn. Unmindful though a weeping wife. And helpless offspring mourn. If I'm designed young lordling slave. By nature's law designed. Why was an independent wish. E'er planted in my mind. If not. Why am I subject to his cruelty or scorn. Or why has man the will and power. To make his fellow mourn. Yet let not this too much, my son, disturb thy youthful breast. This partial view of humankind is surely not the last. The poor, oppressed, honest man had never sure been born. Had there not been some recompense to comfort those that mourn. O death, the poor man's dearest friend, the kindest and the best, welcome the hour my aged limbs are laid with thee at rest. The great, the wealthy, fear thy blow from pomp and pleasure torn. But oh, a blessed relief for those that weary laden mourn. In other words, when Robert Burns looks out at this life and sees man's inhumanity to man, and in his time, the rule of a few over the many, oppressing them with no one to comfort them, His conclusion was, there is a friend to the poor. There is relief to be had. Oh, death, sweet friend to the poor. It's better for them to be dead than to live in this abject misery. 
Ironically, when the preacher in Ecclesiastes looks out on the ruins of Eden, he concludes something very similar. Better to be dead. Better to never have been born than to see the evil that man commits against man under the sun. Friends, this is where we live. This is the ruins of Eden that we have made by our rejection of God's good rule. Last week, we talked about God as creator of all things. And the last part of that catechism question is that everything flourished under God's loving rule. And as we started Ecclesiastes, we saw that Adam and Eve, our first parents, were deceived and decided that the best way to get the gain they wanted was to burn the whole place down. And now we're living in those ruins. And injustice and oppression is everywhere. So we're going to wrestle with the question today, how do we live here as Christians in a world filled with injustice? To answer that question, first we have to look at what the preacher sees, the injustice he sees all around, what Robert Burns saw all around him when he wrote this poem. Take a look with me here at what the preacher sees in verse 16. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun, this is Ecclesiastes 3.16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Skip ahead a little bit to verse 1 of chapter 4. Same thing, again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. When the preacher looks out at the society he lives in and says, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness in verse 16. He's talking particularly about the place where justice should prevail. Which if you think about it, is the legal system, the courts. Right Here, surely, justice will reign. We have courts and we have Lady Justice outside with a blindfold and scales and a sword saying, this is where you can find justice. And when the preacher looked there, he said, no. Even in the place of justice, there is wickedness. Our culture, our country particularly, feels this intensely right now. Especially over these past couple years, we have places of injustice in our court system. Take, for example, a man named Khalif Browder. In May of 2010, Khalif was arrested for allegedly stealing a backpack. The accuser said, well, maybe he stole it or maybe uh, it was like two weeks ago. There was conflicting reports and confusion, but Khalif was arrested and imprisoned at Rikers Island in New York. He spent three years there awaiting trial. Over two of those years were spent in solitary confinement as punishment for behavior in prison. In May of 2013, three years after his arrest, after many attempted court dates and not even be able to get a hearing before those who could deliver justice. Khalif was released because there was no evidence to convict him. 
He was wrongly imprisoned for three years, and in November of 2013, he took his own life. In the place of justice, even there is wickedness. That's the world that we live in, and it happens all the time, friends. It happens all the time. The preacher says, not only in the place of justice is there wickedness, but in the place of righteousness, verse 16, even there was wickedness. Where was righteousness found in the times of the preacher? In the temple. In the temple, in God's holy place, where there is supposed to be righteousness and holiness, even there was wickedness. This was true for the preacher And we've seen it true in our day. In our day, it's not the temple, it's the church. Right? Even in the church, the place where righteousness is meant to be found, even there is wickedness. In 2019, the Houston Chronicle came out with a six-part investigative report on sexual abuse in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. They found that over 200 churches and over 700 victims were implicated and they found that that, estimate, that that report did not have the full scope of things because reporting of these kind of things is very, very low. They found that in the Southern Baptist Convention, pastors, youth ministers who had used their positions of authority to sexually abuse minors were still serving in ministry, going from one church to the next, praying on innocence. In the place of righteousness, wickedness was found. Not only that, friends, but oppression. Those in power with the ability to oppress others. Preying on others. Right now, since 2014, the Uyghur people in China have been systematically imprisoned tortured and killed in concentration camps in our day in China. This is happening. Their graves are being desiccated. Their mosques are being destroyed. They are given re-education and brainwashing in these camps. And while the husbands are imprisoned in these camps, the Chinese Communist Party came up with a program in 2018 called Pair Up and Become Family. Where while the husbands are imprisoned in these camps, Chinese government officials go and cohabitate in the house with the family. Sleeping in the same bed as the wife and doing God knows what. And these people, these Uyghur people, a minority in China, have no ability to stop this. And no one to comfort them. If they cry about it, they will be imprisoned. If they complain, they will be tortured. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. This is the world we've made. This is what rejection of God and his good and sovereign rule looks like. If we find wickedness in the highest courts and in the holiest places, where do we go for justice? Where do we go for holiness? How do we live in this kind of world? 
That's the question that plagues every single one of us as we look out on this world today. It's been plaguing our culture particularly in a poignant way over these last couple of years. And many in our culture are trying to find an answer. What do we do with this? And there are many ways of trying to live in this unjust world, in the ruins of Eden, that are utterly fruitless and ungodly. The preacher in our text is tempted towards one of them. Right? He looks out and he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I saw all these oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And what does he conclude in verse 2? The same thing Robert Burns concluded. I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is what the preacher is tempted to when he sees this wickedness and this evil. Better to be dead. Better to be out of this world, out of these ruins. Better to escape from this reality that is too much to stomach. But friends, escape from this reality that's too much to stomach is not the answer. We know from the testimony of Scripture that life is a gift that God has given us. And it's not up to us to escape or wish to have never been born. Job concludes the same thing when he is suffering. He wishes that he had never been born, thinks that it might have been better to never have been born. But we cannot escape the evil of this world that way. It's a fruitless attempt. Others of us, rather than trying to escape through not being born or being dead. Others of us would try to escape suffering and injustice through indifference, cooling our hearts to it, living in a world where we cannot do much about injustice. We conclude, maybe I should just live carpe diem, seize the day, live self-centeredly and hedonistically, and all will be fine because I won't have to think about it. You might think that's what the preacher is calling for in Ecclesiastes when he says things like he does in chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You might think that the preacher is advocating a hedonistic lifestyle where we just live self-centeredly. But we know from elsewhere in his text, when he looks at these questions... And he looks at this world. He doesn't just disengage from it. And he doesn't just live enjoying eating, drinking, and being merry. This kind of hedonistic lifestyle, he said in chapter 2, will not give you the gain you're looking for. He's tested all those avenues of pleasure. And it doesn't escape this view of the world. It leaves you maybe happy on the outside, but with a rotted empty soul on the inside. Some might look at the world and cynically say, yeah, all is suffering. All of this world, as the preacher says, is hevel, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Do we just get to look at the suffering of this world and the injustice and say, you know what? That's just the way it is. And cynically say there's nothing else, no better hope. 
We know in Christ Jesus that there is better hope than that for those that suffer. Better ways to deal with the injustice we see. The most common response, or I shouldn't say the most common, but an increasingly common response in our age is some kind of idealism that says, you know what, there is injustice in the world and I can do something about it and I'm going to work my fingers to the bone doing something about it. It's the kind of idealism that says, I'm going to work and work and work and toil and toil and toil and eventually the gain I'm looking for will be found. Regardless of what side you find yourself on the political spectrum, it might be that you think, if we just elect the right people, this is the response of the moral majority. If we just elect the right people who enact the right laws, we will have justice. We will have a just society. Or on the other side of the political spectrum, you have those who are striving for social justice and think, if we just tear down the corrupt institutions... And then if we just empower the right people, we will have a just society. Friends, electing good and godly people and removing corrupt institutions and caring for the oppressed who have no power, those are good things. But putting our hope That if we toil enough at those things, we will eventually find the gain of justice is a false hope. The preacher's already shown us this, hasn't he? In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 22. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Friends, some who work so hard to fix the world drive themselves mad. Because if you try to carry the weight of the world's injustice on your shoulder, and if you think that by working hard enough you will be able to fix it, or maybe even make a sizable dent in it, you will be utterly discouraged. Just think about all the blood, sweat, and tears that was spent on defeating Hitler and ending the murder of countless millions of Jews. Good blood, sweat, and tears to be spent. Don't get me wrong. Right to fight against that injustice. But guess what? More Hitlers come. Right? Fighting against Hitler and defeating the Nazi Nazi Germany and freeing the Jews from concentration camps did not stop ISIS from arising and beheading Christians, right? It did not stop further injustice. It didn't stop the Communist Party from rising up and committing countless atrocities, the Uyghurs of which is just the latest. If we put our hope in these things, we will be crushed. That's what the preacher sees and knows. That's why he says and is tempted towards the conclusion it would be better off not to be born. We cannot find the gain we want when we see injustice under the sun. What do we do then? The preacher doesn't look out at all this and say, you know what, I'm out of here. He does offer hope. 
I think that Ecclesiastes is ultimately a joyful and hopeful book. But the hope comes by looking the evil in the world directly in the face. And then thinking about that in light of who God is and what he has done. And that's what the preacher does even in Ecclesiastes 3. He says in verse 17, after he looks out and says, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. You remember what we saw last time when we looked at the beginning of chapter 3, that God, as the Lord of time, has created a time for everything. And God himself is sovereign over all of that time and is teaching us to trust him. The preachers learn that lesson and he says confidently that God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there's a time for every matter and for every work. Friends, the first way we respond Christianly to the injustice and suffering and oppression we see all around us is to believe this promise. This truth that's consistently taught in God's word. That God himself will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time of judgment coming. We can believe this. The preacher believed this. Because he knows that God is just. Right? How does God describe himself? In Exodus 34. To Moses. He passes before him and says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise the Lord. We're grateful for that. But listen to this. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation? God is quick to forgive those who repent and turn and trust in him. And yet he will by no means clear the guilty. All who come to God through Christ Jesus in humility, God will forgive. All who refuse to come to God because of their own pride and, cons- and persist in oppression. And persist in perverting justice and righteousness. God will not clear He will judge because he himself is just. Not only that, but he calls for this justice from his people. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 to 20. Moses says this, You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The preacher knows that God will judge because he loves justice. The question is not if. Most of us If you have been at church for any length of time, know that God is a righteous and just judge. You know that he will judge. The problem in believing this problem isn't the if, but the when. This is why the saints cry out in Revelation 6, Revelation 6.10, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long before the Lord will judge those who wrongly imprisoned Khalif Browder? How long before the Lord will judge those ministers who have abused so many in the SBC? How long before the Lord will judge those officials who are systematically destroying the weaker people? How long, O Lord, until you judge? Judgment is coming. We know from Revelation chapter 20. Listen to how God will respond to the injustice in the world. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. God does not forget. He keeps record of those who remain rebellious and evil to him. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Verse 13. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in to the lake of fire. God will judge and all of his enemies who refuse to repent and believe and continue to pervert Justice and righteousness and to oppress those who have no power will be thrown into the lake of fire. And then, and then God will make all things new. Verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's our precious promise that we hope in that one day God will judge all of the wickedness we see around us and one day he will make everything new where there is no death and no crying and no pain because justice is no longer perverted. Righteousness is no longer destroyed. Oppression of those without power is no longer a factor. But how long? We know God's justice is coming, but it is not yet here. How do we live in the ruins of Eden, waiting for the justice of God, knowing it's coming, having faith and trust, believing that promise, but knowing that it's a coming but not yet judgment? The preacher gives us two lessons to help us live that way. Verses 18 to 21 of chapter 3, he says this, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. 
All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. This is the first lesson he wants us to learn. That we are but beasts. That sounds like a strange lesson to me. I bet it sounds like one to you. We are but beasts. God is testing us, he says, in verse 18. This is not testing us to try to find out something he doesn't know. This is testing us to show us something. The lesson that he wants us to learn is that we are but beasts. And the reason he wants us to learn that. He's not trying to say, hey, you thought you were created in the image of God? No, that's not true. That's not what he's commenting on. He's commenting on our mortality compared to God's eternality. In other words, when he says that we are like the beasts, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity or all is hevel. When he says that in verse 19, he's saying that our mortality limits us. When we look around at the injustice in the world, even if you could live a thousand years, you could not prevail over the injustice that is done under the sun. You do not have an eternal nature like God does. You are not God. You are, when compared to the beasts, in your time of life, you're more like the beasts who die than God who remains. That's what the preacher is trying to say. He's trying to say that this mortality then limits us and daily forces us to see the reality of what God says about himself in Isaiah. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. This is the lesson that God taught Nebuchadnezzar. And I think his story helps us understand what the preacher is trying to say here. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought pretty highly of himself. We read about in Daniel 4, verse 29, that at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? In other words, he's exalting himself. In his pride, he's saying, look at me and look at my power and look at my ability. He's worshiping himself. And God teaches him that he is but a beast, quite literally. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. And he said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like the bird's claws." God was teaching Nebuchadnezzar that he is but a beast and has no advantage over the beast. Not in the sense of not being created in the image of God, again. But when compared to the Almighty. I am grateful that God has chosen not to make all of us experience what Nebuchadnezzar did to teach us this lesson. The preacher says, when you see the injustice in the world and you see God's apparent delay in judgment, he is teaching you this lesson Mercifully, without making your hair grow as long as eagle's feathers. He's teaching you 
this lesson. Verse 34 of Daniel 4, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? When we look at the injustice and oppression in the world, we are tempted to say to God, what have you done? How dare you? Why don't you fix it? And we are meant to learn with Nebuchadnezzar. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? We're meant to learn with the prophet Isaiah. God's ways are not our ways. His works are not our works. They are holy and righteous and good. But we often don't understand them. The lesson we're trying to learn is that we are not God. We are not God, and so we need to recognize with humility our finiteness. That's the only way we can Christianly respond to the injustice in the world is to recognize with humility our finiteness. That we are not God. And that we cannot ourselves determine what the best way to pursue justice is. Not only that, but recognizing with humility our finiteness, we are called to respond to the reality we have in front of us with rejoicing. This is what the preacher says. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is not resignation to say, you know what, there's nothing that we can do, so just eat, drink, be merry, ignore it, don't worry about it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we ought to rejoice in our lot, which our lot is the place that God has put us in. The work that he's given us to do in that place, rejoice in our work, for this is our lot. It's the people he's put in front of us, And it's the needs he meets day to day. We don't know what will come after us. Not in the sense of not knowing that we have a life hid with Christ in God. But we don't know what will transpire on this world after us. We can't control what will happen after we die. We can't control whether work for injustice that we've been spending our whole lives on will continue after we die. We can't control whether what we leave to the next generation will be squandered or will be used for righteousness. We can't control these things. We don't know what comes after us. And so we are called to daily rejoice in the lot that God has put in in front of us. When we rejoice in this lot, when we look at the work that we have in front of us, the good works that God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, When we look at that and react with joy, we are protesting against the brokenness of the world. What I mean by that is that we protest against the injustice and the oppression of the world by living our daily lives. Not saying all of this is vanity, none of it matters, 
and checking out and not working ourselves and our fingers to the bone. But we show by day to day walking with Christ that this world is being redeemed by a redeemer. We show with our daily trust in our Father that this world is moving on a trajectory towards everything being made right, towards everything being made new. And we show that that knowledge is enough, that trust is enough to sustain us day by day. This kind of living daily, rejoicing in our lot, is only possible through Jesus Christ, friends. This is what he did when he came. He came into a world that has the same brokenness, the same injustice as we do. Right? The preacher was writing before him. We see these examples after him. He came into this world knowing that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there is wickedness. And that there is oppression. And the oppressed have no one to comfort them. He came into that world. And how did he come in? He didn't come in riding a war horse and slaying the enemies and making everything right in an instant. He came in as a little baby. He had people to save, things to do. And what did he do? He spent time apprenticing with his dad and learning how to make furniture. He lived daily rejoicing in his lot. Lived daily in communion with his father Showing us how to live that way. And then, when the fullness of time had come, at the proper time, at God's timing, His Father's timing, He went to the cross, the place of the greatest injustice ever, where the oppressor oppressed Jesus. But Jesus wasn't without power to overcome it, was He? Instead, he used his power to lay down his life and redeem this broken world. He then enables us to look at all of this injustice and know that everything will be made right. Because the Father, in his perfect wisdom, through the injustice of the cross, reconciled all things to him, we know that one day, when everything is made right, everything will be fitting. This is what the preacher says. God makes everything beautiful in its time, right? Ecclesiastes 3. Jesus shows us how to do that. Jesus shows us how to not only live day by day, but to suffer injustice. 1 Peter 2, we learn that Christ suffered injustice, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, this is what it looks like To live in light of all of this injustice in the world. This is the only way possible to live. You will crush yourself if you try to overcome all of the injustice in the world. You will not crush yourself if you find rest in Jesus and then take joy in the work he has put in front of you. Which includes doing justice and loving mercy. Right? It doesn't preclude working for those things. It doesn't preclude striving to see the oppressor overcome and striving to see the oppressed comforted. But friends, when you rest in Jesus, you can work on those things without being crushed by the burdens of this broken world. It's this kind of rest in Jesus which enables us to do this 
It's this kind of rest in Jesus which enabled Corey and Betsy Tenboom to do this in the midst of horrible, horrible circumstances in a concentration camp. One day, Corey was bitter. And Betsy was reminding her of what they should do. And she said that they read in God's word that morning that they're to give thanks in all circumstances and for everything. And so Betsy starts praying and giving thanks and she thanks God for the fleas that surrounded them in their horrible, horrible conditions. And Corey objects and says, "That's how can you give thanks for the fleas? That's a line too far. And Betsy reminds her that God said, give thanks in all circumstances. And we learn later in their story that it's these fleas that kept the guards away and enabled them to read their Bible for themselves and for others around them and to share the gospel with so many people. It's this abject suffering, this horrible conditions, this injustice that God used to accomplish his beautiful purposes in them. He does that again and again and again. He makes everything beautiful in its time. So friends, let's walk daily, trusting in God, thanking him in all circumstances, crying out to him to have our needs met, walking humbly with our Lord as we seek to do justice and love mercy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us. These things are hard enough to talk about, Hard enough to hold up and say, let's do this. Lord, it's even harder to actually do it. I feel the temptation of the preacher. What if we could just escape all of this? Lord, I know many of us do at times as well. So I pray that you would help us. Help us to have the faith to trust that you are making all things right. Even as we can't see it right now, give us the eyes of faith. And help us to trust your word as we go forward. By your spirit, walking with Christ day by day. We pray. Amen.